Good morning once again, and welcome to Knox on this Easter Sunday. We're glad that you're here. If uh, you happen to be next door in the Knox Commons watching the service on video, because this is such a crowded day, we extend a special welcome to you and to all of you. I thank you for huddling close together and making room for one another on a day that it, it, that is a very important one uh, for us to be together as a family of faith. Let us pray. Startle us, O God, with your truth and the good news of this Easter day, and open us to your love. And in this hour, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight, for you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Gospel, according to John, tells the story of Easter, beginning with the words, early in the morning, before, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. My Easter day today began this way, early in the morning, while it was still dark, and the pastor had set two alarm clocks to be sure that he was up on time, just a few minutes before they were to go off, his spouse reached over and shook him and said, You're late! You need to get up now! You're going to miss Easter Sunday! And while I tried to recover from my cardiac event, she said, April Fool's Day. Now, April Fools to all of you, my lovely wife Anna is much kinder than that, and that story did not actually happen. <laughs> but I looked all over this week for the right joke about Easter falling on April Fool's Day. I'm sure pastors all over the country were looking for this right joke, and I never did come up with one. But it's fitting. It is right for Easter to take place on April Fool's Day. Everyone knows that people don't get up from the dead. And nevertheless, this is our busiest Sunday every single year. Clearly, something is going on here that may be foolish. At the very least, it is not reasonable. Many of the most meaningful things in our lives are not reasonable. Many of the happiest things, as well as the most painful ones, defy explanation. How do you put into words the feeling of falling in love or of holding a newborn baby? Can you sum up in words what it is to grieve the death of a loved one? Can you describe the depth of hurt involved 
in holding a bitter grudge against a member of your family? Can you describe the peace that comes when you experience reconciliation and forgiveness with that person? Other mysteries are more ordinary, but just as important. What is the secret to 50 years of marriage? How do you find meaning in day after day of carpooling and laundry and groceries? Or how do you find meaning when your days no longer include any of those tasks and just seem to be going on and on? Sometimes the routine things of life can be miraculous. Other times they can weigh us down unbelievably. We can get frustrated with our inability to understand the purpose and the meaning of it all. A difficult truth is that much of life is unexplainable. To make sense of life, we have to allow room for the unexplainable. We have to learn to be more at home with the things about life that we cannot know. We have to look for meaning to emerge out of the mysteries. Many times, Christians try to make Easter reasonable. Theological commentaries and countless sermons explore rational explanations for the empty tomb. They provide philosophical gymnastics to explain the resurrection. We do this with the hope of rationalizing this event enough to get you to believe it. We want to give you something of substance to share with your non-Christian friends who think you're a fool. The truth is that all of that is very much beside the point. This day and many other days in the life of Jesus Christ are meant to be mysteries. From the miracle of baptism and communion to the depth of Jesus' forgiveness and grace toward us, there are plenty of things that we cannot and should not want to explain. The moment faith becomes fully explainable, it loses its significance. Without mystery, faith becomes just another part of life. On the other hand, when we embrace the mysteries, faith gives meaning to the rest of our lives. Whether it is a trip to the supermarket or the death of a loved one, we are encouraged by the knowledge that somehow God is there. The ordinary and to-be-expected events of our lives become significant when we allow room for mystery, when we raise our awareness of God's unexpected moves in our daily lives. So this morning I'm going to share the story of Easter without any attempt to explain it away. From the very beginning, we know the author is trying to tell us a mysterious story. Early in the morning, it says, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene made her way to the tomb. 
Mary is engaged in a mysterious exercise of her own. She's going to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices. It was a practice that had ritual significance for the dead and would have helped the living to experience their grief. Though neither happened in any way we can fully explain. The spices were intended to be applied before burial, so it is clear that Mary is simply doing what she thinks is best. She expects no resurrection on this Sunday morning. God has something else in mind. Finding the stone rolled away from the tomb, Mary goes to tell two of the disciples, who are surprised enough that they engage in a foot race to the tomb. When they get there and they find out that Mary is right, it says that without proof and without understanding of what had taken place, they believed. Sometimes a moment of belief leaves us unsure of how to respond. Those two disciples must have been at something of a loss for what to do with their belief, because the story simply reports that the disciples left the tomb and returned to their homes. Mary stays. She is weeping outside of the tomb. And when she finally looks into the tomb herself, as the disciples had done, her faith leads her to see something they did not. Two angels are seated in the tomb among the burial shroud, which is folded up in its place. Angels must be hard to explain. This story doesn't tell us anything else about them. When Mary turns around again, we are told something that is as deep as mystery can get. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Why doesn't Mary recognize Jesus? What is different? How has he changed? How has she changed? that she does not recognize the very person whose tomb she was going to visit. We do not know. We are left to wonder. What we do know is that a beautiful moment takes place next. This one, this one who Mary does not recognize, who she mistakes for the gardener, he calls her by name. He simply says, Mary. And at that moment, she sees that it is Jesus, her Savior. She sees that he knows her. And so she knows him. Theologian Serene Jones has taken a good stab at what this means. She says, this tells us much about how we know God. 
Like Mary, we long to be known by God, to be held in God's gaze, to be seen by God as the object of God's love and desire and care. This longing, she continues, is not general. We do not want to be loved by some distant cosmic Lord who relates to us in some grand way that God relates to the cosmos. We want to be seen for who we are in the most intimate, far-reaching corners of our interior lives, our bodies, our histories, our dreams, and our losses. The question for Christians at Easter is not whether or not Jesus got up from the dead and if so, how. The question is, have you ever thought about what it would feel like if Jesus were looking right at you? What knowledge would be contained in his gaze, his compassionate gaze? What does no one else really understand about you? Your life, your pain, your failings, your longings? Can you imagine how it would feel if Jesus, the one you've read about, the one you may have even prayed to, can you imagine if he called you by name? What would come next? What sins would be forgiven? What wounds would be healed? What would you ask him, this God of mercy and of grace? What could be more amazing than this? In the same way that Jesus looks at Mary Jesus is looking at you. God is looking at you, hoping for you to look back. The one who is Lord over all of creation, the stars and the planets, the waves and the wind and the mysteries of the deep, that God of the cosmos also knows you, knows you by your name. God knows all of the mysteries and subtexts and secrets of where you have been and where you are going, the joys and regrets and the griefs in your life, and God loves you. God loves you. The most important things we know about God are not abstract things. They are not a general philosophy of life, nor are they intellectual matters related to science or doctrine. The most important promises of faith are the personal ones. That is how God meets us in the midst of the ordinary places where we need God the most. We learn faith not from books, 
but from watching other faithful people. I'm sure many of you would say that you're here this morning because of the way someone else you witnessed lived the faith. You're here to learn how to live it more completely yourself and to pass that faith and hope on to someone else the way it was passed on to you. This is what's important about the way the Easter story is told. As I mentioned before, it seems strange, maybe even foolish, that so many of us show up every Easter to hear a story we already know. And for us rational, proof-seeking human beings, it is even more strange that we show up for a story that does not provide the proof or the how, or any of the information that many of us think we want. But none of that rational stuff is what this story is about. We may all leave church today and still not know anything about how Jesus rose from the dead. But we get to watch the difference it made for someone else. We get to watch Mary as God calls her by name. And in her experience, we get to be inspired in our own lives by the thought that God wants to look us in the eye and tell each of us that we are known, that we are forgiven. That we are loved.